somehow people have equated public health instead of with a positive movement that wants to have people have what they need to be healthy. They associate it with masks and limiting liberty. And and I think that's unfortunate because that's not what it's about. Welcome back to Connection Request. I'm Joel Lehman. Today on the show, I'm talking to Chris Ayersman, the architect of Minnesota's COVID-19 pandemic response and the former longtime director of the Infectious Disease Division of the Minnesota Department of Health. Chris spent more than 30 years of service in public health before retiring and played key roles in many public health issues, both here in Minnesota and beyond. Minnesota leaders have called her an extraordinary public servant, a true leader, and someone responsible for cultivating a new generation of talented public health leaders. We talk about what she learned during the global pandemic, a time she describes as being a frog in a pot of boiling water. We also talk about other outbreaks during her career, why public health is linked to social justice, as well as what public health has taught her about the world. She also details the biggest learning experience of her career and how the pandemic taught her how to swear. And she describes some of the immense challenges of the politicization of public health and public service and what she's been up to since retiring. Just a quick note, we're off next week, but we'll be back in your ears the week following. I hope you know how thankful I am to all of you for listening. We'll get to my conversation with Chris after a quick word from our sponsor, SK Coffee. This season, we are thrilled to be sponsored by SK Coffee, a specialty coffee roaster based in Minnesota, shipping worldwide. Listeners of the show will remember Sam from season one, where he shared his journey from musician to entrepreneur. We'll hear more from Sam later in the episode. Chris Ayersman, welcome to Connect Request. Thanks for having me. So nice to have you here. I'm excited to catch up with you and dig in about your career and the exciting sort of cap to it that was COVID-19. But let's start off with an easy one. Will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and what you've done throughout your career? Well, let's see. Right now, what I'm doing is I'm teaching at St. Olaf College, and I am teaching in their nursing program, but they have a public health concentration. And so multiple different divisions within the college are all participating in this public health concentration. And so last year I taught an introduction to epidemiology course, and this fall I'm teaching an introduction to public health course. And I am very much loving it. It has been the perfect retirement activity. And I say that because I did retire a little bit early and on purpose because I wanted to have time to do some of the things, the travel and things I wanted to do. But teaching has given me a chance to stay in a field I love as well as to help, I hope, encourage and inspire the next generation. And I find that very rewarding. Well, that that's great to hear, Chris. Am I right? That's your alma mater. You're back to where you went to college. Is that true? Yes, actually it is. And that's been an especially fun part of this teaching process to get to be on campus. 
because I missed a lot of time on campus when I was a student. In the nursing program, we spent a year and a half in the cities for our clinicals, and then I spent a semester in India. So I'm glad that I'm getting to spend more time on campus. Hmm. It's a beautiful campus, beautiful place to be. Well, my first question to you is, you know, in a lot of your interviews, when you left the Department of Health, you mentioned that you were really tired from the pandemic. So I'm wondering, have you had a chance to catch up on your rest? Yes, I have had a chance. You're well rested? A lot of sleeping, a lot of bicycling, and uh, I'm feeling better than I have in a very long time. Hmm. Well, well deserved. Tell me about this moment right now. How has retirement been so far and what's been surprising to you? Well, what I've been surprised about is just, as people do say, retirement can be a little bit busy. So there's some things that I I still haven't done a year and a half in. And, And part of that is owing to the fact that I did agree to do this teaching. And so, you know, doing some preparation and things takes time. But when you're when you now have more time to exercise and you're doing it, that then that takes up time. And so anyhow, I haven't just laid around quite as much as I dreamed I might, but I think that's just fine. As you've been engaging with future nurses and people working in health, if your students are a good leading indicator, how are the prospects looking for the future of health? What have you learned from them? Well, I'm encouraged by their enthusiasm. I mean, that's what makes me excited. And so when I see that, I feel good. I feel good that there is a a new generation with energy Hmm. and uh, enthusiasm to come into the field. And what I want to encourage them with is that each generation has their opportunity to make a difference. Hmm. I I just had the chance to give up a presentation that involved reviewing my career. And so as I was kind of going back to the beginning, I realized when I first started at the health department, I was in graduate school. And so you're absorbing all this information. And so you think, yes, I'm learning all that is known. And then I came to the health department and I was working for Mike Osterholm. And of course, he had already made a name for himself even back then. And so there was this feeling like, wow, all this stuff's already been known and there's a lot of cool outbreaks and they've already been figured out. And kind of what will my role be? Well, I'm just really happy to be here. And in looking back then over my career, I thought, man, I was privileged to see a lot of really exciting things happen in public health. And it just, it reminded me that even though I felt that way when I started, I had an opportunity to contribute and this generation is going to have an amazing opportunity. So I'm really excited to see what they're going to bring to public health. Yeah, that's amazing. That like, if you had only known, I suppose, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I would have not taken the job, but yes. <laughs> well, let's stick back in time for a minute there. Let Take me back to Chris as a young woman. What should I know about you then to help me know about the person and professional that you became? Take me back to that point in your life when you were starting to figure out your career. Well, I have to say that I was probably a little bit naive. I had spent a semester in India, as I mentioned, and that really gave me a desire to make a difference in the world. 
I worked at Hennepin County Medical Center on a surgical floor as one of my first jobs. And that really taught me that I wanted to get upstream. In other words, I didn't really like doing the tertiary care where you're fixing people after stuff had happened to them. I'd rather get upstream and, you know, build a fence so the cars didn't drive off the cliff rather than be the ambulance at the bottom. And so all of those things were in my mind. But I was, I think I was a little bit naive to the needs of my world. And what I mean by that is spending time in India gave me the opportunities to see global need. Hmm. But I think that with my upbringing, it was a little, well, I was just a little bit naive. And so I don't think I really realized um, the, the complications and the challenges in our world uh, as it relates to public health. So homelessness and hmm. challenges with addiction. I knew those things sort of at an academic level, but I think public health taught me to really broaden my scope of what does it mean to make sure that everyone has what they need to be healthy. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for my upbringing, but I'm also grateful for my time in public health and what it taught me about the world. Hmm. And I'd rather be me now <laughs> than me back all those years ago, although I had a good heart when I started. To me, it Sounds like you continued to learn and to grow, and as, as I think we all aspire to do. So that makes total sense to me. I've heard you talk in interviews before about how public health can be a real calling and vocation in some ways. I'm just curious, has it always felt like that throughout your career? And if so, you know, something we talk on this show a lot about is sort of vocation versus a job. Could you talk to me a little bit about kind of at least for you, the role of something of feel like feeling a higher calling as opposed to clocking into my nine to five. Yeah, I would definitely say that I viewed public health as a calling for me. In part, it fulfilled kind of an important part of my being, which is the faith aspect. And I felt like, you know, I was called to serve others and to care for my neighbor. And so public health really gave me the opportunity to do that. And I'm the kind of person that has to believe in what I'm doing. So yeah. that's just how I'm hardwired. Yeah. And yeah, I do I do really feel like, well, to put it back to this class I'm teaching, there was a quote that I used in one of the early lectures from Dan Bochamp, and it was about public health at its heart is really seeking social justice. Hmm. And that really resonated with me. And I think that's why I have really appreciated having the opportunity to be a part of it this whole time. And as I said, I think I've grown in my understanding of what that means for the world. Yeah, But that is, I think, at the heart of it, why it's been so meaningful for me. I've also heard you describe it as a dream job, which especially of the last few years that you were there is, is hard to sort of put those two things together in my mind. But tell me about like overall over the course of your career, what made it so great? What did you love about it? And what were a few learnings and highlights over your time? Well, I think the reason I loved it so much was, first of all, I was in infectious disease public health. And so there, there are other areas of public health and there's chronic disease. I mean, there's just, it's a very broad field, but I happen to be in the infectious disease area. 
And that's an area that is ever-changing and pretty fast-paced. And so I'd like the speed. I like sort of the action of Mm. it. I think I'm a little too impatient to work with chronic diseases. And so it's probably good I, I was an infectious disease. But I also liked how every single day was different. And as I moved through my career, I had different opportunities for leadership. And so, you know, you were working on policy issues and how can we get a message to the legislature and, you you know, testifying at the legislature or doing media. There was communication. There was working with data. I always felt like um, working with data and things like that was like opening a package. You know, you got to see what Mm. the data were going to tell you. So that was I really enjoyed that. I really enjoy teaching and educating. So I had those opportunities. And then the thing about public health is it's not a career that will make you rich, Mm. (laughs) but the people that go into it, they all want to be there. And so they all view it in that sort of vocational way, like you said. And so the teams that I got to work with were phenomenal. And Mm. so all of those things sort of contributed. You could help make the world a better place and ensure people had what they needed to be healthy. Things were happening fast. And it was kind of exciting when you were working to solve an outbreak. You got to impact policy. All of those things, all of that change. I really enjoyed that. Were there any moments throughout your career and certainly maybe during the end of your tenure where you thought about going into something else or perhaps taking a job that was more lucrative? You know, not really. I mean, I really was grateful to to have the chance to be in public health and it was really encouraging to me. It really filled my tank and it was always a positive experience. The one time when I thought about going back to a more clinical patient care um, experience was when my mom was sick and had uh, been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And when I saw how impactful those healthcare providers were and what a huge difference they made Hmm. in my life and in her life when they were providing care, there was a part of me that thought, wow, maybe I should go back in to into an area of patient care just because that had been so meaningful. But ultimately, I think my skill set fit better with public health. And so it just it made sense to stay where I was. It sounds to me too, like you, you got to evolve and change and do leadership and public policy and like all sorts of different things. So I can imagine why you wouldn't want to leave either. I'm just curious, other than COVID, which we'll get to in a minute, what was one of the more interesting or challenging public outbreaks of your career? In infectious disease, we tend to have diseases that we kind of like and gravitate toward. And so a couple of my favorite diseases were or are uh, pertussis or whooping cough. And we did some special studies or data collection related to that. And then measles. And I think probably one of the things that was really interesting for me, and it's challenging, and I feel like it it remains a challenge, was the measles outbreak that we had. Well, we had one in 2011, and then we had another in 2017. And it was really driven by unvaccinated children 
from our Somali community. Hmm. And that was a situation in which I watched this community go from having vaccination coverage levels for MMR, the vaccine that protects against measles, mumps, and rubella, um, that were higher than our majority white population to rates that were so low that we were able to have an outbreak go through that community. And it really had to do with fears about autism, fears that the scientific data have shown are not based on what science is showing us. But for that community, it's a huge concern. And it kind of reflects my learning in that when we first started working with the community, they were concerned about higher levels of autism in their community. We, as the immunization program, we reached out and, you know, gave them the data. The data don't show this, the data, science, blah, 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 you know, just what we're good at. Yeah. And it didn't cut it for the community. And, and part of the challenge was that I know in my own mind, I was thinking, well, that's what I know. I know immunizations. I know science. I don't really know about autism and that type of thing. That's another part of the agency. But what we learned over time when we weren't successful with the community was that it didn't matter what we said about immunizations. They were concerned about autism and we had to meet them there if we Hmm. were going to make any progress. And so we ended up changing our approach. We partnered with our kind of the family aspect of the department that that handled autism and making sure people had access to services. We added a number of Somali staff. You know, we did some things differently to do better outreach and connection to the community. And for instance, with the 2017 measles outbreak, we involved the imams and we met with them. We had pediatricians go to the mosques during Ramadan, and they would kind of do an educational message in conjunction with the imams. We had, I know, one of the imams who became a good friend, he said, yes, prevention is an important message in our faith. And so this makes sense. So we did those things, and it made a difference at the time. But one of the challenges. So I think those were all the right things to do. And it certainly was uh, a growing experience for all of us at the health Hmm. department moving forward to be much more community focused and community engaged. But we still find this as a challenge. And I think the Somalis have a proverb that says, once a lie gets out, the truth cannot catch it. (laughs) Just it it can get ahead of things. And what we realized is it's really important one-on-one relationships, that type of thing. And that is really difficult to be scalable. Yeah. And so I feel like we learned a lot. I think the agency changed a lot over time and how we dealt with community issues. We established, like in my division, we established a special equity engagement unit that had specialists who specialized in uh, dealing with people experiencing homelessness or people who were incarcerated or, you know, different things like that, who had experienced dealing with community outreach and community engagement. I mean, all those things were good and important, but it was something that we had to grow into And I feel like when we were growing, the community was 
becoming more concerned about the issue of vaccines. And Mm. so I I don't want to say that it's a lost opportunity because there's still a focus on working within the community and making sure people have the information they need to make good decisions. But to me, that, that was a situation in which we were successful as epidemiologists in controlling the outbreak. I have a graph that shows the trajectory of the 1990 outbreak where we had 460 cases and three deaths. And it kind of goes gradual. And then this outbreak started really steep, but we did really good exclusion and our public health measures really tamped it down. So yay, I look at it and think great success on the epi side. But then I look at the greater situation and I think, yeah, this was the biggest learning experience mm. of my career. And although I would say we've made progress and I think the agency's moving forward, it's still an area that needs a lot of work. And so I, I bring it up for that reason. I mean, I'm proud of our response yeah. to the outbreak, but I also know that we have a community that still has needs and we haven't been entirely successful in connecting with them. Hmm. What an incredibly thoughtful and nuanced answer. I like just going over that particular moment and challenge. And as we'll get to more of your career, I'm just really grateful to have had someone like you and your colleagues leading us through these crazy times. Okay, let's jump to 2020. It's a moment that, you know, in preparing for this interview, I had nowhere near the craziness that you had in your life, but it's like, oh, I thought we could just leave that time behind. But I think it'd be beneficial for our audience to to learn from you a little bit. When did you know in 2020 that something was really different and this was going to be one of the craziest moments in your career? When did that happen for you? Well, I will say that it, it wasn't immediate. So I didn't hear about, you know, the cases of respiratory illness in Wuhan and think, aha, this is it. Hmm. (laughs) Because there have been other situations where we've kind of, you know, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, where we oh, is this going to happen? And then, you know, it does, but not at the wide scale level that obviously COVID did. Even when we did pandemic planning, I remember some of the early pandemic influenza planning, and we met with like economists from the White House. I was on some national committees, and we we talked about the economic impact of a pandemic and and all these things. Well, we had lived through the 2009 and 10 influenza pandemic, and while it was hectic and crazy for a time, you know, it didn't have that it didn't have that sort of global economic involvement. And so I think at some level, I was a little bit naive thinking, well, I made it through that pandemic. And so we've got this new thing coming. I just, and even though we had prepared for that type of thing, I just kind of didn't absorb it right away. And when we first started talking about things, I remember doing media interviews and talking about how there were different stages and there might come a stage in which this was going to impact everyone's day-to-day life. So in other words, it wasn't just listening to it on the news and hearing somebody talk about a disease. It was really going to impact their lives. But I think even as I was saying that, trying to get the public to think ahead a little bit, I don't think I even really realized how... Hmm. dramatic this particular um, 
event would be. But I can tell you this, that when, when it started, I mean, it was so stressful even before we had a case hmm. because, you know, we were doing, we were testing and we could only test individuals who met certain criteria. And so we'd have some of those situations to test. And then we'd be on pins and needles until the results came back because we didn't know if we'd be doing a huge press conference. And so, in fact, when we did have our first case on March 6th, I mean, I've done, I had done media many times in my career, but stepping out to that press conference in the governor's space there with like every camera and every media person in the state, it felt like there, that really ramped it up. There's a lot to love about SK Coffee, our presenting sponsor for Connection Request. Every time I talk to SK's founder, Sam Chelberg, I'm fascinated to learn more about what makes their coffee so special and why people are so drawn to them. Here's Sam. We're not a company that you're going to get the exact same thing over and over again. It's always going to be an exploration. This is literally an agricultural product, and every year it's different. So. It's like wine in that way. But something even more special than the coffee itself has always stood out to me. It's the entire SK team's passion. They treat their work like a real art form and each of them care deeply about coffee's people, place, and process. Here's Sam again. The way we're trying to tell that story is not through, you know, interesting crafted cocktail coffee drinks, right? It's all, what is the coffee trying to say? What is the producer, the place, the plant itself trying to say the process? And we are literally translating that communication from the raw product into your cup. To learn more about SK Coffee, visit skcoffeeplease.com or check out their excellent Instagram page. If you live in Minnesota, stop into one of their cafes in St. Paul or Minneapolis. You might even spot me there. All those links are in the show notes. Okay, now back to the show. Chris, during those moments, like I'm sure you almost didn't even have time to feel your feelings, but what were you thinking or what did it feel like to all of a sudden sort of be one of the principles in our state having to lead us through that time? What, like, obviously your career led up to this moment, but I don't know. Was it tough? Was it difficult? Was it stressful? Well, you know, in some ways, it was a little bit like the frog in the boiling water. Mm. So, well, and I'll just say this too about that first case and the, that press conference. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember it, but it was a situation where the governor got up and spoke and then key leaders from different agencies all said their little piece. And then they all had prepared statements. And so our staff had prepared things for the governor, for the commissioner, and then oh, they didn't have anything for me. So I had to stand up there and be completely extemporaneous. So I can tell you that I was panicking and praying pretty hard because, you know, that was, I wanted to be articulate and intelligent yeah. and I didn't have any, I didn't have any prepared comments to, to go <laughs> off of. So just that's one thing I definitely will never forget is that that moment. And it went well. I mean, all of a sudden some things came to me and it turned out just fine. But anyhow, no, let's see. You were just asking about... What did it feel like to, oh. to live through that 
the, that I moment, mean, that yes. moment, yeah. Other than, yeah, so that's what I started to say. It was a little bit like a frog in the boiling water, except for that moment of sheer panic standing yeah. up at the podium. Be, the reason I say that it was a little bit like a frog in boiling water is, one, it really was so busy that you didn't have time to think. But two, you know, we started responding. And so some of the things that we did was we, we did these daily, I, I started doing these daily press updates and it was just yeah. me and I just answered questions and everything. And then it was so well received. Then it was like, oh, we should have the commissioner come. And we did this like what well, seemed like forever. <laughs> and then then the governor's office saw that and they were like, oh, you know, and so it sort of evolved. So in other words, it started out as just Chris getting out there, giving this is what we got today. Here's a few high points. Here's a few things I want to just make sure you're aware of, yeah. you know, to our core press people and things like that. And then it really evolved into this. Well, it was on the radio and it was, you know, I mean, it, it was just carried and it became something that was much bigger. And I think it was helpful. I think it was really helpful to be that available and transparent with people. But yeah. let's just say we didn't strategize at the very beginning and think, oh, yeah, this is what's going to happen. It was very much we were responding to what was happening. We knew we had to get messages out. And so yeah. it, it kind of evolved. And that's why I say it, it became a little bit like the frog uh, in the water. Yeah, that makes sense. With the benefit of a like a bit of time and space now from that time of your life, what did you learn about yourself and how you operate during that time? I heard that you learned how to swear. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so I grew up in a family that was pretty conservative and I don't know if mild-mannered is the word, but there was no swearing. And so I, I didn't really know how to swear. And so a, a, or over the course of my career, I learned swear words. And then I would think over time at certain points, I think, well, if I swore, this is the swear word I might use in this situation, you know, in my head. And then further on in my career, close to the end, I might actually use one of those words when I was in the presence of a trusted colleague you know, in private and express frustration or <laughs> exclaim over a situation. And when the pandemic hit, yeah, I got to the point where I learned to use some words that I never thought would ever come <laughs> from my lips and only ever, as I said, in, in private with a trusted colleague or at home. Um, but it felt so good. And then <laughs> I found a study that actually said that swearing actually helped to reduce stress. Yeah, so, I've heard that before. Interesting. Yeah, and you're it, a data person. You and look it, at so the data. I, felt, I really felt justified <laughs> then. And my staff, we were we would talk because people were under so much stress. And so we'd have these like Zoom meetings with the whole division. And I was just saying how I could understand how they were under stress and how it affected us all in different ways and how I had, you know, started to swear. I, I had shared that with them to kind of say, this is how I've started coped. 
And oh, that was the news. That was the news of the day. The rumor became then, instead of just sharing that I had used this as a coping mechanism, it had become that I had actually sworn at the division <laughs> meeting. So I had to clarify no. And they gave me a sign that said, you know, swearing when meanie head and dummy just don't cut it anymore or something like that. So we had a good joke about it, but I did learn to swear and it did make a difference and help me in some ways. <laughs> That's really funny. What did you learn about leadership throughout that time and throughout your career in general? Something that struck me in preparing for this interview is you are such a grounded and humble leader. I saw it like in interviews that I watched of you, you just always gave credit to the team. You made sure people knew that it wasn't just you, even though you were the face of it. I'm curious, where did you learn that style of leadership? And yeah, what else did you learn about how to lead a team and an agency? Well, you know, there's a term called servant leadership. And I guess I've, I sort of adopted that approach. But I always felt like my job when I moved into a leadership position was to make sure that I did what was necessary to help my team be successful. So my job was to make sure that I was supporting my team and helping them be successful. And I always felt like I needed to be willing to do everything myself too. Now, I tried to do things like make my own copies or do things like that within reason. I mean, I didn't want to be being paid as the division director and then sweeping up in the sense that I wanted to be making sure that I was being strategic in what I did, but I also wanted staff to know that if I'm asking them to do it, I would do it. Yeah. And I made a commitment to know and care about my staff as people. And so our division was pretty big, even before the pandemic, we had about 230 staff and, and a number of graduate students, but I wanted to know everybody's name and I wanted to make sure I knew something about them more than just, you know, Joel Lehman does pertussis. I wanted to know about their lives. I wanted them to know that I cared about them as people hmm. and that their needs as a person were more important than our needs as hmm. a, an agency. So that was kind of my, my mindset. And I was privileged. I mean, our health department, our infectious disease area is like one of the best in the country. So I was privileged to work with these amazing people. Hmm. And so I made it my goal to do whatever I could to support them. And I think what was so surprising to me was that when I was leaving, at some point, you know, they did a little exit interview for the agency, partly because I had become so well known during the pandemic. And one of the, the questions I was asked was, well, you're the, the kind of leader that We've heard you really care about your people. And so I talked a little bit, but I thought, to me, I thought, this is a stupid question because everybody who's a leader should be caring about their people. Their, your people are your most important resource. Yeah. And so when I talked about it, I spoke at this meeting and things or talk about what's my lesson learned, your team is the most important thing you've got. And your job is to do everything you can to support them. Hmm. And so that was my priority during COVID. Um, and it was my priority when I was a division director. And 
it seemed like it served me well. I think it was, I think it was the way to go. I think it was the right thing to do. I agree. One thing I saw a quote from you, you said, when I started my career, nobody knew what an epidemiologist was. And (laughs) now everybody thinks they are one. And I'm just wondering, (laughs) you know, between social media and the internet and COVID especially being such a thing where everybody at some point felt like they had something to say and something to ask and opinions and thoughts. I'm just curious, how did that shift impact you? Because it really must have changed sort of your day-to-day, like what you had to deal with and what you had to think about. Yes, it did. Because, well, first of all, when I started, when I was in graduate school, the first semester I was there, the federal government I got a tuition wave because they needed people to go into epidemiology. I mean, hmm. nobody knew what it was and it was a field that, you know, was not as well known and now, of course, as you said, everybody knows what it is. So the good news is that throughout my career, I think a lot of people in the public wouldn't really know what public health was. They might if pressed, they might be able to talk about clean water. Hmm. And I think that's one of the the downsides of public health is because we're about preventing things from happening, sometimes it's hard for people to recognize, you know, what we're doing. Um, But then the challenge with COVID became that all of a sudden everybody had heard of public health. They all knew what epidemiology was. And now all they associated it with was taking away their freedom. So what is public health? Public health is making me wear that mask that I don't want to wear. And public health is, you know, shutting down the bar that I wanted to go to. Yeah. And that I think was an unfortunate outcome. I mean, I'm glad that people know what epidemiology is and I'm glad that there's an awareness of public health. But unfortunately, I think that some of the conclusions that people uh, started to draw during COVID were not really accurate. I think they missed what is WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children program, to make sure that moms and and babies have good nutrition. I think they miss the clean water. They miss, um, you know, some of the monitoring that our environmental, well, restaurant sanitation. I mean, all the things that public health does that are really positive, even controlling disease, because we sure controlled a lot of disease over the years without having people feel that their liberties were infringed upon. So that's the only thing that I think is a downside is somehow people have equated public health instead of with a positive movement that wants to have people have what they need to be healthy. They associate it with masks and limiting liberty. And and I think that's unfortunate because that's not what it's about. Well, and to that end, Chris, it feels to me like this politicization of not only public health, but public service more broadly at sort of all levels of government, that at least in my lifetime, it feels like the pandemic was this big kind of milestone in terms of that. And I don't see it going away anytime soon. It feels like it's part of the the decline in trust in public institutions. I know this is a big question, but like from your unique perch where you kind of saw that throughout your career, any ideas how we get back to at least restoring some of that kind of trust in, in public health and public servants? Well, I think one thing that that we did and the agency continues to do is we were very concerned with transparency and ethics and those kinds of things. And I think it's really important that 
we continue to to make that a high bar that we follow. And I think that if the workers continue to do their best work, continue to do work, continue to put data out there that's accurate, I mean, I think that makes a difference. But I do think that it's going to take some time, and I hope we're able to come back from this politicization because I think it's really it's unfortunate that somehow science has become politicized. I mean, science is science. And I worked in my career for multiple different administrations. And what I appreciated about my position was I was the highest level civil servant. So in other words, um, above me were the appointed folks. And so I was not political. And so my job was always to provide the scientific information to leadership to help them make decisions. And so I think that's what public workers have to continue to do. But I feel like we're going to have to, something's going to have to give. And I don't know if it's with education or what, but we have to learn that science is what it is. It's not political. You know, you you do the experiment, you get the result. The result is what it is. It's not Uh, leaning to one side or the other. And how can we, yeah, reinforce that in our population? I'm not sure, but I know that it's something that we have to, we have to be seriously thinking about. And I guess that's one thing that when I think about teaching, I think even if these students don't go into public health, at least they've learned about it. They have an understanding of it and they, they understand the true broad perspective and broad viewpoints that are public health. And I think that's good. That's good for the community. Chris, as you as you continue to teach and hopefully take some time to be with your loved ones and to travel, what are you going to hold on to most from your long and, and tenured career in public health and service? What what kind of memories and stories are you holding on to? Um, well, I think the things that are most precious to me are the relationships with colleagues. So that's that's what I was reminded of when I retired is that, yeah, I won't be in the position, but I can still be connected and maintain relationships with people. I'm really proud of the work that we did. And I'm, I like to, to be able to look back and think, yeah, we did really good work. And this group that I was with you know, we pursued excellence in our science and in our public health. Um, and then I just, I, I like to think back and just think about all the fun we had. That was one thing. Hmm. I mean, you go through all these really stressful times and you need to have a sense of humor. And so, yeah, you care for your team, but some of the ways that you do it are by joking around. So for instance, when I think back on COVID, a fun and happy memory is I used to, at the end of every meeting, I would say, now, anything we missed, any potholes that we want to avoid here, you know, let's talk about it. Well, that's what we started out was potholes, avoiding potholes. Then we went to dumpster fires. And then we went from dumpster fires to flaming volcanoes. (laughs) And then from flaming volcanoes, we went to rings of hell. And so in epidemiology, there are these graphs that you make and you use it to show disease occurrence over time. So you've got number of cases and time, and then you've got your graph of number of cases. So we had this epi curve of COVID in it. It had the cases going up and then it had like potholes, dumpster fire, flaming volcanoes, 
rings of hell. And it's stuff like that. I look back on, I've got all kinds of little goofy memorabilia that I brought back with me. And those are the things that are going to, when I look at them, they're going to remind me of happy times with wonderful people doing meaningful work. Well, that seems like a beautiful place to wrap things up. Is there anything I forgot to ask you about or any other wisdom you'd impart upon our listeners? Well, maybe if there's someone that hasn't had an interaction with public health before, they can keep in mind that those people that are working in public health are just normal, average, everyday people like them and cut them slack because when they're working you through the next pandemic, it's just as stressful on them as it is on you. I think that's a good reminder. And I'll say too, Chris, when we were going through 2020 and beyond, I felt really rest assured that you were there leading the team and that there are just wonderful people in public service and in public health like yourself who are um, doing really important work. So thank you for your service and, and for your time today on the show. Thank you. It's fun to be with you. That is it for today's episode of Connection Request. If you enjoyed today's episode, would you make sure you're following us? It'd mean a lot. Today's show is produced by Marie Ayanazo and me, Joel Lehman. Our theme music is by the amazing Mike Lauer and his band Viewers Like You. It's from their album Panoramia. The show is a production of Shrug Content, a podcast studio based in Minnesota. You can learn more about us at shrugcontent.com. Special thanks to SK Coffee, our presenting sponsor. You can learn more about them at skcoffeeplease.com. If you live around the Twin Cities, ping me. I'll take you there myself. First cup is on me. You can connect with the show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Send us feedback, guest ideas, and funny TikToks at connect at shrugcontent.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.